0: this message is a recording from kaleo phoenix a church plant in downtown phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of god good evening kaleo good to see you all glad we can be together as aaron mentioned it is the second sunday in the season of lent uh I shared this last week. I kind of had this epiphany, I guess, which is you can't have an epiphany in the season of Lent because that's its own season if you're familiar with the church calendar. <laughs> but I, I just I, I can't keep to shake it as I've been thinking about Lent. Uh, the last couple weeks, and and it's this reminder, obviously Lent is an invitation to join Jesus in the wilderness, right, to join Jesus in a time of fasting and prayer, to re-examine our lives of anything that might have kept us from practicing his ways and following him and joining him even in the suffering of the world, or maybe anything that pushes us away from the goodness of God, we can fast that during this time as well. But I kept thinking about how the reality is that we join Jesus in the wilderness after Jesus is reminded that he is God's beloved, right? It's at his baptism where the spirit descends on him and he hears the voice from heaven that says, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And then he goes into the wilderness. And I just, I love that that's how we're situated in the wilderness in the season of Lent. Lent might be a a hard time, if you will, but it is a time in which our identity is still cast upon us as God's beloved children who bring him great joy. So as we wander around in the wilderness, as we try and cast away the things that might keep us from practicing the ways of Jesus, the reminder is that we're still rooted in this foundation, that we are God's dearly loved children. And so what I'd like to do before I even start preaching is I'd just like to give us a moment to sit in that truth. To be reminded for a moment, maybe reorient your life towards that truth that the foundation of you is rooted in God's love. So let's, let's just sit in the stillness with God and receive our truest identity as God's beloved children. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. We thank you that you are a God who is already present here among us. And as we lean into our story for today, I pray that we would encounter your spirit afresh. Would you give me your words to speak, Lord, words that are for you and from you and make much of you draw us nearer to your heart and send us out as people filled with your spirit, practicing the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. We love you. We need you. We trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Jump right into the story. The story goes like this. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and he said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you'd do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born-from-above talk? Jesus said, You're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that a body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within it is formed by something you can't see and touch the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above by the wind of God, the spirit of God. Nicodemus asks, What do you mean by this? How does this happen? Jesus said, You're a respected teacher of Israel, and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is no secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you of things you can't see, the things of God? No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed, By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Good story, isn't it? I've been thinking a lot about stories and how we have a tendency to try to explain to you all the points of the story so you know what the story is supposed to be about, or the temptation to go, yeah, but did this story happen? Is it true? Did it happen just like this? Are these the facts that happened? Because if so, maybe I'm more likely to believe it. But maybe there's something more to story. Maybe there's this holistic vision that the story might be communicating to us. And so I just invite you to reflect on that story. What is it revealing to you? What came to mind for you? What did you see in that story? And as that lingers in your head, I'm gonna shine a light on what's been standing out to me as I've been thinking about this story. I say that too as one who's not the sole arbiter of the one interpretation of this story. I want to begin with a character study, though. So we're going to begin with Nicodemus, since the passage opens with an introduction to him. Nicodemus, right? There was this man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. How does he show up to hang out with Jesus? He comes to Jesus in secret, right, under the cover of darkness, sneaking along and right, it's pretty interesting to imagine at first of all we think of Jesus and we're like well where was he staying right because Jesus didn't have a home wandered around so he knew where Jesus was staying and on this particular night he creeps across town right like you can just kind of see him like shadow to shadow shadow to shadow as he makes his way to wherever Jesus is staying What's interesting is that Nicodemus, right, is a ruler of the people. He's a religious leader. He has some prominence to himself, and he takes his prominent self to Jesus at a time when no one could see him. Why do you think that is? Okay, I'm actually asking. Why do you you think that is? Why Why do you think Nicodemus went to see Jesus under the cover of darkness all secret? So in my elementary ed training, I was an elementary ed major, we would call them shouter outers. Any, any, any shouter outers, like what do you what do you think? Right? Like, why do you think Nicodemus went in the middle of the night in secret? He knew, he knew the law. okay? He already knew. He was ashamed that if he actually befriended Jesus, maybe he would not be in the world. That's good. He was afraid. He was afraid that maybe if he befriended Jesus, he'd lose his authority. Yeah, Robert was. Thinking, uh, he was ashamed to be seen with Jesus. Ashamed to be seen with Jesus. He was worried about his reputation. Worried about his reputation. My guess is also by Jesus being alone, um, he could say, "We believe you're from God without having witnesses." Ooh, that's good. Okay. Any Any anybody else want to shout anything out? In fact, Oh, hey, that's clever. I like that. I like that. That's good. One of my favorite approaches to just reading the scriptures in general is thinking of scriptures as like a jewel that you keep spinning and you look at it through all these different angles. And so I feel like when we just begin to let our imagination flow, we're like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought it could be like that. And you start to expand the story a little bit more. All right, let's move onward. I wonder this. I wonder if Jesus didn't want to be associated with the poor and homeless Jesus just yet. The fact that he didn't have anything yet except some miracles to his name. So regardless of why, which we don't know, which is one thing I love about the story. Nicodemus, though, is representative in this storytelling, right, of a a larger group of devout Jewish leaders who are at least on some level aware of the miracles and identity of Jesus. Right, he kind of comes as a representative of all, and they've heard Jesus, right? They've heard of Jesus. They're aware of his miracles. They know that he's been doing something. And I wonder at this point in time, because John's gospel is not, like, straightforward, by any means, right? Like I wonder what miracles they'd heard of. Like was there one that finally happened and Nicodemus is like, all right, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go check this out, I don't know. He's an intriguing character in the Gospel of John because as we even mentioned as we shared some ideas, he embodies something powerful Right? He's the keeper of the knowledge as a Pharisee. He's like telling the Jewish people, this is how we live. This is how we interpret what we're supposed to be doing. Right? Their there Pharisees weren't like all bad guys, right? is sometimes the, the anti-Semitic trope that gets pulled out here, right? Like, no, they're trying to like honestly figure this thing out and invite the people uh, to follow Jesus or to follow God in this case. Now they're intrigued by Jesus. So here he is representative of all that. And he shows up to Jesus, and the first thing he does is the opposite of what Jesus does. He doesn't ask a question. Did you notice that? At the very beginning of this, he doesn't ask Jesus a question. This whole thing gets started because Jesus decides he's got something to say. You're all like, well, hold on, what, really? Yeah, he didn't ask a question, right? He just showed up there. He affirms the identity of Jesus based on the miracles that Jesus has performed. He says, so certainly you must be of God. It's just, again, it's interesting, right? So here he is, this powerful Pharisee, but he's also representative of something else. I find him a weird and profound person who has this progression of faith. Perhaps you've read this story in the past. You've, I'm, it's likely you've heard this story if you've been in church at any point in time. You're at least familiar with John 3.16 in which this story uh, surrounds, right? And you maybe you're like me and you have this propensity to write off Nicodemus, maybe frustrated by his silly questions or his lack of <clears throat> comprehension, kind of like Jesus is because we'd like to be like Jesus in the stories. And so we're like, Nicodemus, if you just figure it out. But do you know the rest of the story? Of nicodemus right maybe i'll tell you anyway so you don't have to be like guessing right like he shows up two more times in the gospel of john he shows up in john seven and in john seven the pharisees have actually sent out some temple guards to try to arrest jesus now, if they knew that this was happening in John 7, they knew it was way too early, right? There's a bunch of chapters left, but they didn't know they were in John 7 at the time, okay? So John 7 happens. They send him out, and they don't come back with Jesus. They don't come back with Jesus, right? They, they empty-handed. They show up. And the Pharisees chastise them, Like, they're like they, the guards are telling him, you don't know what they're saying about Jesus out there. Like, oh, do you believe in this Jesus too? Like, right? They're kind of mocking them and then in like a, a somewhat timid fashion you can kind of like imagine there's like a council right of of Pharisees meeting I guess and here come the guards in with nothing and they're like ha ah, sorry he's tricky out there you know like that whatever that is and then Nicodemus speaks up in this timid fashion and he and he says like he's you can just feel it in the way he says it right he says is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing And I I could just hear in his voice this, like, wrestling with his own calling, this attempt to try to find his voice. Like, what is it that he's going to say into this moment when he's on board with this idea that they would send a guard out to arrest Jesus? And then the other Pharisees turn around and mock Nicodemus, just like they had the guards. Fast forward John 19, we find Nicodemus again. This is after Jesus has been arrested, beaten, and crucified. Jesus is hanging on a cross, and a man named Joseph from Arimathea shows up, and he asks if he can take down the body of Jesus and give it a proper burial. Joseph, it says, is a, a secret disciple. Not so secret anymore when you Go and say, can I take the body of Jesus off the cross? Well, joining Joseph on this particular day is Nicodemus. Nicodemus has paid for all of the burial spices and ointments and provides the tomb that Jesus is going to be buried in. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are named at this moment in John 19 as those taking the body of Jesus and giving it a proper burial. Rodolfo Estrada Summarizes Nicodemus like this Inasmuch as we may criticize Nicodemus for misreading Jesus' origins or refusing to admit his allegiance to Jesus when confronted, we can at least agree that he is positively portrayed in the final moments of the narrative when all the other disciples are absent. We cannot deny the significance of giving Jesus' body all the dignity that an innocent person deserves. Most importantly, it is Nicodemus' final association with Joseph and willingness to give Jesus a proper Jewish burial that reveals who he really is. A Jewish Pharisee who was curious, gripped by fear, but became devoted to Jesus with a public embrace of his crucified body. So from that vantage point, let's look at, how the encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus starts again. There's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Alan Dwight Callahan comments on this. He says, Jesus' metaphor of rebirth speaks of transformation, not of the world, but of the self. He says, the regime change demanded by the rule of God must begin with a radical transformation of those who would rule. You see something unique that Jesus is doing here, right? Right? Jesus looks Nicodemus in the eye as best as they can see each other under the cover of darkness, right? And he says, you must be born again. A face-to-face encounter with Jesus in the middle of the night. Because that's going to be the beginning of the entire regime transforming. When those in power begin to also have a radical transformation, And it seems that it takes a little bit of time sometimes to be born. And so it is true with Nicodemus as he's born again. There's more to mine with this birthing metaphor. I'm going to get there in a minute because surprisingly enough, in the beginning of this whole thing, the word birth is used eight times. And I am an expert on talking about birth. So that'll be really helpful. Uh, But before we unpack that, let's look at another character in this exchange Uh, You may be familiar with him, Jesus, right? Who is Jesus in this exchange? Or maybe more specifically for our purposes, who is Jesus in this meeting with Nicodemus? One of my spiritual heroes, Howard Thurman, offers insight on how to perceive Jesus and situate his humanity in this story and in history, and here's what he writes in Jesus and the Disinherited, which you should just read sometime anyway, but here's how he describes situating Jesus historically into this story. The solution which Jesus found for himself and for Israel as they face the hostility of the Greco-Roman world becomes the word and work of redemption for all the cast down people in every generation and in every age. He says, I mean this quite literally. I do not ignore the theological and metaphysical interpretation of the Christian doctrine of salvation. But the underprivileged everywhere have long since abandoned any hope that this type of salvation deals with the crucial issues by which their days are turned into despair without consolation. The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. Right? Jesus enters the world to join in with those who are being oppressed in that day. He does not come as one with status, especially in this encounter with Nicodemus. He doesn't even have a home. We don't know where he's even staying. He's just in town. As this Jesus situated in this moment embarks on expanding the mystery of being born into the kingdom of God, all the listeners to such a gospel, and especially the communities who were reading John's gospel, they're immediately prompted to reflect on the holistic implications of how we are spiritually transformed. Right, there's there's immediately this question where Jesus has positioned himself, which as Thurman talks about is those who have their back against the wall, he's already there. He was born into that place. He lived into that place. He was chosen to go to that place. What then does that mean about the way in which we're spiritually transformed for the sake of the whole? This is why I bring that up. Diana Butler Bass, who's a historian, she notes that few texts are misquoted and misinterpreted more than this selection from John, and few more widely influential. She says, since the first great awakening in the 1740s, it's been a key passage for evangelical Christians, usually quoted in revivals, to convince unbelievers to be born again. My guess is there are many of us in this room who are familiar with this passage because of that context. So then why does Jesus, unprovoked, respond to Nicodemus with a monologue on being born again? And does it mean what it's been said to mean in evangelical spaces? So thinking about where Jesus is situated in society when this meeting takes place, and the implications of who Nicodemus represents, I'm gonna spin the jewel one time, if you will, and I'm gonna take a particular look at what's going on here. Are we tracking so far? Nicodemus, Jesus, right? Nicodemus, Jesus, okay. All right, so there's an array of interpretations for John three, for sure, okay? And we can, we can track those down. One of the beautiful things about that is there's not one, or is there a right one? There are lots of them, some better than others. I'm going to present one that's rarely explored, okay? However, I believe it holds meaningful implications for our work as kaleo as we seek to embody a beloved community as the multi-ethnic family of God. Has something specific to say about that. So to begin, we need to remember that there is in fact a context for those who these words were intended for, right? The gospel of John was not just written so that we could read it, in 2023 together and be like, this is what we need it to mean today, right? There was a, it was written to a place and a time and a people were reading it in a place and a time. And this gospel is addressing this Jewish Christian community that's been excluded from their local synagogue, that has a blend of converts who exist on the border between Gentile and Jewish while simultaneously facing pressure from Roman authorities to participate in the civic cult that is Roman culture. The gospel of John, in fact, and you're going to be like, oh, dang, that's so true here in a minute, is concerned with Jesus encountering people who are ethnically different. And it, it, just, like, it just happens right away because the very next chapter is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and somebody in the gospel, and it's the Samaritan woman. Right, And then you'll start reading John, and you'll start tracking. You're like, dang, this is, this is true. There's a thing that John's doing as he writes this gospel. It's not the whole thing, but it's a thing that's happening. And so Jesus, who comes announcing the kingdom of God, is affirming what God has always been about and what John proclaims, in fact, at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It says we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind, glory-like father, like son, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. That's the message translation of John 1. The whole thing is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. So if Jesus moved into the neighborhood to speak through this gospel that John's writing, that is continually reaching beyond some inner circle that existed already, we go, wow, what is Jesus up to? Well, he's generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So what's he doing? He's the one who gives birth, which is already flipping things on its head, right? So here, even at the beginning of John's gospel, we've got a feminine vision of God, right? That God cannot be gendered, right? That God embodies all of gender in this case. And so here is Jesus, the birthed one, who is also the ever-birthing presence, calling new life from the womb of God into the world, not once but many times over and over again. That's what God does. New birth. And so all of this talk of birth in the beginning of John 3 brings Nicodemus's role in the conversation to a close, and his question is also our question when he asks, how can these things be? Like, what are you talking about, right? We have to hear within this question the confusion, the curiosity, and the desire to comprehend how being born again by the Spirit provides entrance into the kingdom of God. Honestly, it's a really legit question. So if the spirit is giving birth with Nicodemus, we say, what does that mean and how can it be? Estrada writes in his book, A Pneumatology of Race in the Gospel of John, Which just sounds fun to say, let's be honest. Uh, So he says this. He says, the emergence of new ethnic members within the community challenged the establishment to rethink what it means to consider non-ethnic Jews as children of God. Right? So that was always the question as Christianity began to take shape. Right? What do you do with the non-ethnic Jews? Do they have to become Jewish to become Christian? Right. So there's always an ethnic question at play here. Anyway. We are therefore not only hearing a dialogue about the Spirit's role in birthing new members into the kingdom of God, but an argument for ethnic inclusion based on the Spirit. Okay, just tracking that for a second, right? The, the Spirit of God is what initiates us into the kingdom of God, but to be the people of God and the kingdom of God in the world is to actually extend The the inclusion of multiple ethnicities, right? That's like that's what's at play here, without insulting our intelligence, right? Like let's just get on the same page. People who are born are born into what Estrada calls kinship groups. You're you're born into a family. You know, we might just be one, but it's the whole family. You're born into that. But on top of that, you're born into a family or a tribe or a clan or an ethnic community. And he says that a baby then is placed in relation not only to their immediate family, but also their historic ancestors, which shapes their present identity. But There's a whole line through. You might not always know it, but it still is shaping your identity in some way. So for Jewish Christians, the ongoing challenge was connected to their Jewish genealogy, and how that one ethnicity granted them privilege within the group. Because they were Jewish, because that was their genealogy, then they had privilege in the group of followers of Jesus. Still tracking? Okay, still tracking, right? So here's what Jesus is doing. He's subverting this at the start. But what he's not doing is he's not advocating for cultural erasure but cultural celebration. He's saying all of the ethnicities that need to be here need to be represented as they truly are. They don't have to become like something to assimilate to this people of God. So how can this be? Estrada brings insight again. He says the repeated emphasis on being born aims to challenge their understanding, the community, and specifically Nicodemus, who he's talking to, their understanding of ethnic relations, including the rights and privileges that came from being born into a Jewish ancestry. So what's happening in this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus is Jesus challenging Nicodemus that the spirit is granting new genealogical lineage that destabilizes all privileged ethnic relations, kinship groups, and ethnic origins. He's trying to flatten it, right? He's saying, here's our starting point together. It's important to make note of who is Jesus talking to. The one who holds the power about who will be included in the community. That's how Nicodemus is thinking. That's why he's so shy to speak up in John 7. And that's why it actually costs him everything to embrace Jesus' crucified body in John 19. So what does this mean then? For a group of people seeking to love one another, practicing the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God in Phoenix, Arizona in 2023. To champion the need to be born again by the Spirit, Estrada says this, is a direct assault to those in power who uphold and maintain systems of genealogical privilege and ethnic superiority. Jesus' metaphor of rebirth speaks of transformation, not of the world, but of the self. The regime change demanded by the rule of God must begin with a radical transformation of those who would rule. So to put a fine point on what it means to be born of the Spirit and its implications for a multi-ethnic community, this should get complicated and I'll come back to it, okay? So just like the words sound big, but they're good words, so I kept them in there. Nationalism and ethnocentric patriotism that maintain and foster xenophobia and racial hostility because of somebody's foreign location of one's birth are practices that are contrary to the spirit's birthing activity of inclusion. That's that's what Jesus is initiating here in John 3. So all of those things nationalism, ethnocentric patriotism, xenophobia, which is fear of the stranger or fear of the other, racial hostility, which you probably don't need to define for you, right? All of these things, something based on where someone's born, all all of those things that push any of those people aside because of those things is, is the opposite of the spirit's birthing activity of inclusion. So he says it like this, strata does. He says xenophobia, again, fear of the other, Racism and exclusion are not merely wrong for morality's sake. He says they are anti-pneumatic spirits. That means they are not good spirit spirits that roam the earth and bring about division and animosity towards those whom the spirit has embraced through a new birth. You, you see the spiritual level that's at play here, but it also hits us in the practical. You see why it's actually so hard to become and embody a beloved community who seeks to be the multi-ethnic family of God as well. Because all of these things are at play and they're all originated in this place that born again from the spirit, but we bring all of these things with us. But we also have to leave all these other things behind and we have to elevate things at the same time as we're going down at the same time and humbling ourselves here and then we're willing to listen to a story here. You see why actually Nicodemus had such a hard time with this too? He's like, tell me again what you were saying. So I would like Jesus to bring us home on this as we hear some of his most famous words. And in light of the journey we've been on today, I'm gonna to give them to you in a little bit different framework so that you might hear them from a fresh perspective because you're probably familiar with John 3:16 and 17. But these, as we continue to shake our minds free to see anew, to see afresh, to be born again, 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 again. I'm gonna read them from the First Nations Version, an indigenous translation of the New Testament. Reads like this, John 3, 16 and 17. The great spirit loves this world of human beings so deeply he gave us his son, the only son who fully represents him. All who trust in him and his way will not come to a bad end, but will have the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. Creator did not send his son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. May we receive this love of Jesus as our vision for beloved community. May this be what comes to define us. And so let's just sit again one last time. Let's conclude the way we began and create space for Jesus to have a final word about all we've navigated today. So let's sit still, silent as best we can in the presence of Jesus and let's listen for his loving voice and ask, light of all of this, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me today? What do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? Just continue to sit in this posture of prayer. And as Donnie, Tina, and Jay come up and we prepare to sing one more time, let me just read those words from John 3 16 and 17 one more time. The Great Spirit loves this world of human beings so deeply, He gave us His Son, the only Son who fully represents Him. All who trust in Him and His way will not come to a bad end but will have the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. Creator did not send his son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, that we would trust you, Jesus, the one who loves us so deeply and so fully, that you would set us free from the worthless ways of the world, that you would align our hearts with you, that you would birth us again in your spirit, and that we would embody in all the fullness of love, that we would put love into beloved community as we learn to be together in humility and compassion, the multi-ethnic family of God. To you be the glory we love you, Lord. Amen. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at KaleoPhx.